Welcome to Conversations in Equine Science. My name is Kate Acton and I'm joined by Nancy McLean. And this is the podcast where we discuss equine research and try and make it accessible to horse owners and enthusiasts. Please remember with each topic we discuss that your horse is an individual and you should seek professional advice before implementing any strategies. Today, Nancy and I are discussing an interesting topic that was sent in by a listener. So it was the request to find research and find if there is a link between changes in weather and the onset of colic in horses. And there are two different papers that we're going to take a look at. So one is correlation between equine colic and weather changes. And that's a 2017 paper by D. Trenopolo. And that was a study that was carried out in Greece. And then the second paper that we're looking at is a 2020 study. So, well, it was published in 2020, just in November gone by. And this is the lack of association between barometric pressure and the instance of colic in equine academic ambulatory practice. And that's Jay Kianchi et al. And what was really interesting about these, at first I have to say, when I saw the request, I always like to kind of come up with a hypothesis in my head about whether, you know, especially when it's not a topic either of us have picked. When a request comes in, I think, oh, I wonder if it does have an effect or if it doesn't. And I kind of hypothesize that whether you know, didn't have an effect because I was thinking purely from, you know, the way the digestive tract works. And in my head, like colic is always, you know, we're feeding something wrong. (laughs) And I know horses are such stressy animals, but the first thing I think of when I think of colic is uh, not enough hay, not enough fiber. Uh, But what I thought was great is that these papers looked at, um, different instances of colic and they were actually able to pull out other areas where horses may be predisposed or you know certain breeds uh, which we'll get to but I think what's really important is in the second paper they had this sentence that I thought was just it really gets across the gravity of what colic is in the equine industry and it says horses that are euthanized or died are almost 12 times more likely to have a diagnosis of colic than any other diagnosis. So 16% of all horses that have colic don't survive. Whereas horses that present with any other illness, we only see 1% not survive. So it really is so um, prevalent and such an emergency in our Um, horses that it is a great topic to discuss and a really good one to kind of dive into and see how weather and management play that role. I thought it was really interesting too that with parasites being implicated in some um, forms of colic that the first study uh, from Greece they went ahead and monitored far parasites. So they gave anthelmintics and then they also did fecal egg counts. So, and those anthelmintics were giving quarterly. um, And that this was a three-year study and the second paper um, was a 
uh, 12-year studies. So we're not talking on just short-term research here. This the first one, and I think the second one too, weren't those retrospective studies, Kate, where they yeah. took medical information and correlated it with weather history, which is so easy to do today with the weather service having their historical sites, I think in just about every country. But um, they went ahead, um, the Greek study, and they took relative humidity and temperature and correlated those changes with an incident of colic. And I had to look up relative humidity because I have no idea what that meant. And it's actually the amount of water vapor present in the air and it's expressed as a percentage of the amount needed for total saturation in the air. So if you have 20% relative humidity, there's a there's 20% water vapor in 80% air. So you can kind of see how that might correlate with temperature. Um, there was a point I wanted to do a study on dew point and relative humidity, and if it affected uh, racehorses um, from bleeding their pulmonary bleeding or EIPH. And um, I kept seeing that the humidity between Florida and Chicago could be the same, even though the temperatures were so different. And why that is, is because it wasn't figuring in the relative humidity. It was figuring in the humidity ratio, and that's how much air is actually in the air. And that warmer air holds more water. Uh -huh. So your relative humidity is going to be higher in Florida than it is in Chicago. But your humidity ratio could be exactly the same. So a little meteorology That is actually there. so interesting. <laughs> well, I had to do research because I had no idea. And I was thinking about doing my master's thesis on that pulmonary bleeding. And the reason I didn't end up studying that is because in America, our bleeder cards are not given because a horse has bled they're given more or less as a preventative. So I had no way to control mm. who really bled versus who just wanted to, you know, have a bleeder card and go on Lasix. So there was, that was the discrepancy why that research couldn't be done. But anyway, they're studying in the Greek study, relative humidity and temperature and the change that occurs abruptly. And in so basically in the studies they did find there's a correlation but yeah. correlation is not causation so what I like is the way they worded it and they said you know in the second study they said season and geographical location of the animal are risk factors in how you know predisposed they are to have a colic so whether it's um spring summer or autumn a horse is more likely to colic than winter. And what I kind of took from that is there's such a variation in weather, definitely in spring and summer. But that doesn't mean it's necessarily the weather that's triggering that because wherever there's a variation in weather, whether it's with our own routine or our horse's routine, we end up changing things. And I always think 
my pony is out 24 7 all year round but she's an older mare and she does have a rug and I am going to reassess that after we did that talk on rugs (laughs) whether whether she really needs it I'm just worried one year I'm gonna go to take it off and she's gonna have dropped condition but I it's every year it's the same thing where you're thinking is now the time to take it off you know we've had like a really warm weekend should I leave it off her or are we going to have a cold snap? And it's always in that spring and autumn trying to figure out when is appropriate. And obviously that's when we end up changing, you know, we might bring our horses in more, we might leave them out more. And this is all going to have an effect on how much they're exposed to their hay net versus being out on pasture or you know, did we decide to leave them out for the night because the weather's good for the weekends, but then the temperature drops at night and they're getting a chill? And, you know, what stress are we putting their body under through our indecisiveness, effectively? I, I think that's that's the way I felt, too, is that I think it's not so much weather changes, although maybe in the cold, we're more cognizant to make sure they do drink more water because we know from studies they're less likely to drink um, water during cold temperatures. However, I think it's a lack of movement for when we bring them in. And if it's like a blizzard out, you're less likely to put them out for their required amount of hours out you tend to bring them in early, which I'm guilty of that. I just did that last week when we had our 10 inches of snow. Um, they were just standing out there getting three inches of snow on their backs. And when I went to the gate, they came right up to it. So I put them in the nice warm barn with lots of hay and lots of water and they stayed in a longer time. Now I kind of paid for that the next day because I practically had to take a spatula to get them off the (laughs) ceiling of the barn. But, you know, they survived the blizzard. They went out, they ran, they played in the snow. I put hay out in the pasture. And I just try to keep forage going in and water going in and keep them moving. And I think that is at the foundation of the management program to prevent colic. But that this study said that it was spasmodic colic or gas colic that was associated with temperature changes during two of those three years. So it makes you wonder that maybe they can get a gas bubble. I mean, with as many feet of intestine as a horse has, which what is it, Kate's small intestine is like 70 feet of intestines alone. And that's only 30% of the digestive tract in a horse. Um, You want to keep things moving through, but you want to make sure they have something to move through that intestine. So I think whether than say it's weather and temperature changes, I think it is a combination of our management during those weather changes. I had a quick Google and you were bang on with 70 feet being the intestine. Well, um, um, <laughs> but I did think of you during when I was reading this, Nancy, because the water plays such a role, definitely when it comes to impaction colics. So 
if it's cold and our horses are less likely to drink, they're not getting enough water, you know, to help actually move the food stuff through their intestines, which is really important. And I did think about how you give your pony um, her cuppa. So you give her a warm yeah. bucket of water. And that's a change, yeah. you know, that's easy to make. Um, the other thing that I thought was really interesting was I have read before, particularly in rabbits, but I've, I've definitely mentioned this before, like horses are big rabbits and rabbits are small horses when it comes to their dentition and their gastrointestinal tracts. And another issue that we see is if they're not getting enough um, saliva on the food. So with horses, like maybe at certain times of the year, we're feeding sub-quality hay or hay that's like shorter cut, not as long cut. And when we feed shorter cuts of hay, the horse is able to consume more of it and do so a bit quicker. And in that way, they actually don't get as much saliva production, which is really important in breaking down that starch. So even though this study didn't go into that, I wonder if that's the link in the spasmodic colic because if we're not getting enough amylase production to break down the starch, maybe we're getting a buildup. But then, yeah, I'm not very scientific in that front. I So I could be wrong. But it would be an interesting area to look into. I think you're spot on, though, Kate, because um, there were those studies that they um, listed in the reference section that said exposure to temperature stress can cause changes in the gastrointestinal microflora, um, thus disturbing the structure and function of the intestinal tract. So, and I think they showed that to be true in rats and mice and mm -hmm. broiler hens even, as well as horses. So um, I think you're right about that. And then there was another study that talked about cold weather uh, negatively impacting the ileal contractility um, in horses. So the higher the, um, you know, the temperature change was, meaning going temperature going down in cold weather, that ileum did, was not as efficient in its con contractions, you know, moving that food and digesting it and moving it along. So I thought that was really interesting. And there, that paper, if anybody wants to look it up, it's a 2016 paper, and it's called um, The Effects of Temperature Changes on In Vitro Slow Wave Activity in the Equine Ilium. And the all First author is F-I-N-T-L, Fentel et al, 2016, and it's open source. So that's kind of a good read about the chemistry and physiology of those contractions in the intestine. And the other thing that they picked out in the 12-year study, which was really interesting, is that mayors were almost twice as likely to get a colic than stallions as well, which I thought the only thing I could really pull from that, Nancy, and I don't know if you know any more around it, is they didn't mention whether they these mares had had a foal or not, which, you know, if they've carried a foal at some point, that does cause displacement of the gastrointestinal tract, 
which should go back into place. But I wonder then if that's maybe the factor in why mayors were more predisposed to it. But I thought like 48%, they said, you know, if you've got a male horse, essentially, it's 48% less likely to have a colic than a female. Yeah, that was interesting. And I don't know if, if unless it has to do with hormones and, um, you know, reproductive um, hormones and things like that. And even maybe during uh, having a foal, a mare has a disposition sometimes to colic after delivering and things like that. But um, I was surprised by that. I was also surprised that age as a horse age, they were less likely to colic unless they had the fatty lipoma strangulation. So um, they were least likely to get the spasmodic and the other types of colic over a middle-aged horse. So that was kind of interesting too. And that second study, I have to say it was done in the state of Pennsylvania in the USA, at, and it was... Um, out of the New Bolton Clinic, which everyone kind of knows that's the place where Barbaro had his surgery when he um, had his fractures in the Preakness. And they're a very uh, well-known veterinary college in Pennsylvania. So they were talking about latitude and you know, latitude making a difference. And the difference was as you went north. So um, I, the only thing I can think of is as you go further north, you get cooler temperatures. So maybe we're back again to where the horse might need more forage and water and um, maybe more movement rather than being in a stall. And they said to then, depending if you're in sandier areas, you know, you have to be careful and cognizant that they're not eating the grass so low that they're taking in sand and then they end up getting sand impactions and sand colics as well. Um, one thing which didn't surprise me, but is always a shame, is that thoroughbreds and Arabs were more likely as well. They're a little bit more predisposed to have a colic. And our poor thoroughbreds, like it just seems... Like if something can go downhill for them, it will um, for them being such athletes in the equine industry. And I think sometimes maybe it's not breed, but maybe it's how we manage that breed and the jobs we give them to do. So, um, you know, we're, I guess it would be better for a thoroughbred to live like your Connemara pony does, but I don't know mine kind of like they like to come in and have their routine of being in a stall all night and then go out for, you know, a long time during the day. And we try to give them as much turnout as possible. But um, I think what we give them to do on the track puts them into a working mode in a routine where they do like to come in and just kind of chill out in being a stall because that's the way we raise them when we think they're going to be athletes on the track or in eventing or whatever sport we choose for them. And I think what you've said really is the key is, you know, they thrive because they've got that routine. So just trying to be as routine as possible. And I think it is just that spring, autumn time. I know we have more sugars in the grass at certain times of year as well, but 
I really think it is managing, you know, our turnout or our stabling of horses during those kinds of periods where we have that significant weather change that's fundamental. I always talk about Don Carone is the old timer that I worked for, and he always had little gems of knowledge that, you know, I think back on. And he always told me, if you're going to turn out in the spring, make sure you give them some good browsy hay for busy work through the night in their stall. And that'll be enough fiber to help them digest the sugars they're going to take in the next day. And when I was doing my nutrition course at Edinburgh or my module, you know, it came true that so much of the time to be able to digest those carbohydrates, you need to put a little bit more fiber to go with them. And even in human diets, you've got your carb content and then you've got your dietary fiber content. And I don't think it's a coincidence you deduct that fiber from your carbs to get your net carbs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that just, it helps in that digestion of the carbohydrates. And I think that I don't have any um, research off the top of my head um, that I can quote on that, but it's about having enough fiber to carry that high starch and that sugar through their system where it gets digested in the small intestine and not gets thrown over into the hindgut. Yeah, I think um, a big role fiber plays in the gastrointestinal tract as well is certainly in horses as a bulking agent. So like, Mm -hmm. as you said, it's going to carry the other food through. But where we see horses have a reduced fiber content there's a smaller amount of food going through the gut and that's when they're more susceptible to an intussusception. So it's where the gut kind of folds over itself, like loops Mm -hmm. over itself. And then the part where it's looped over, looping really isn't a great word to visually describe it. It's like if it was one long tube and you imagine shortening it by, you know, putting half inside the other half, that's what an intersusception is. I don't know if that explained it any better, but no. um, have a Google and you'll see a picture and you'll visualize it. But where we have the gut go inside the other part of gut, it devitalizes really quickly and um, dies. And then the gut releases like all these toxins when it dies. And it's, it's a really time sensitive colic surgery in that case where they've got, and they'll be in, insane pain with it you know more than a spasmodic colic certainly but the fiber plays a massive role in preventing that because it just physically bulks out the gut so it stops that from happening amazing and I just you know can't help it but I always when I find out this stuff I think of him that my god he used to tell me that with and that was just his intuition and his experience and you know I'll come across research that kind of verifies that methodology but I think the best thing for people to do is just make sure your horse gets plenty of fiber plenty of water and plenty of movement wouldn't you say Kate those are the three most important things and probably during a weather change or a temperature change 
um, maybe less stress and a little more monitoring during those times. And where you can choose a male horse and yeah. maybe not a thoroughbred. <laughs> maybe. I love my thoroughbreds, though, but I like the ponies, too. So there you go. We just love them all. <laughs> okay. Well, I think that's about it for this. And a shout out to the listener that got us on this kick because this was enjoyable research to do. And it kind of verified for me to uh, re always be rethinking my feeding program and my management. Um, and that was Positive Equine on Instagram who sent that into us. Oh. So thank you very much. And keep them coming. Definitely. We have another one, another suggestion to make our way through. But um, more suggestions, the better. Because as I said, it's great to get your thinking hat on before you even start. Like, oh, I wonder if that does play a role. Whereas normally, you know, we come across a topic and we already have snippets of what way the research is before we dive into it. So that was really interesting for this week. Yep. Well, thanks so much, Kate, for joining in and we'll see everyone next week. Thanks, Nancy. Take care. Bye-bye.